0: This excerpt is from a Detroit Free Press article written in May of 1986. By December 18, 1983, a month before he escaped, Peter Piper had been a trustee at the Lake County Jail for nearly 17 months. In that time, he had remodeled the jail, the prosecutor's office, and the county courthouse. He turned the jail's adjoining house where sheriffs used to live, into offices for deputies. He installed new security doors and electric wiring. Peter turned a basement room at the jail into a weightlifting training gym, the only such facility in Lake County. A weightlifter himself, he designed benches and built the equipment out of scrap iron. In a program to relieve prison crowding, the state paid $25 a day to three Western Michigan counties, Lake, Allegan, and Montcalm, and during the last three and a half years to board Piper. He worked hard at all three jails. Piper ran the Lake County Jail Commissary and handled hundreds of dollars belonging to fellow inmates. He was let out of his cell at night, without supervision, to pump gas for county ambulances and sheriff's vehicles. Despite many opportunities, Piper never ran. That is, until December 18th. It almost sounds like the Detroit Free Press writers are documenting specifics for a lawsuit, such as the supporting information that, I suppose, is meant to offer an excuse as to why a violent offender of a minor was allowed such lax supervision while in jail. Apparently, he was handy with a hammer. To me, the more informative part is where they note that Piper had laid around in prison, basically doing nothing until he became eligible for parole. Then, the man who had previously been described as angry suddenly became the picture of the reformed inmate. Did his jailers think that the kind of person capable of that type of violence, the kind that he had perpetrated on Mary, suddenly becomes a pussycat with a few years and a couple construction projects under his belt? What about his propensity to manipulate? Let's set aside his sudden and very obvious change in tone the moment parole became an option. Didn't any of them ever read the Walker Police Department report? Did they know about him faking a headache and pretending to be unconscious on the day he violently assaulted and raped a young girl? Or how he lied about it until he realized that he was caught? Peter Piper presented from the very beginning with some very obvious character traits that, while I won't try to diagnose medically, certainly stand out. Manipulative, skilled at deception, impulsivity, Juvenile delinquency, lack of remorse. He even had the gall to blame the victim, insisting that Mary had demanded money for sex. When the parole board failed to vote in his favor and he felt that he had not gotten the ruling he deserved, Peter Piper planned his escape. He felt entitled to his freedom. Afterward, when he was in the wind, as they say, It was learned that he had packed his things, including a TV, radio, tools, and some clothing. He packed them all into garbage bags and left them by the dumpster outside the jail fence. Then, when he was buzzed outside one night to pump gas for the municipal vehicles, a job he had been doing regularly, he waited until the coast was clear, and then he simply walked away. It is a glaring issue of negligence on the part of the people tasked with keeping the community safe from violent offenders. For God's sakes, his jailers made it just about as easy as pulling through a fast food joint for dinner. At the time, Lake County Sheriff Robert Blevins said, quote, Peter Piper is not a thief. If he was, he would have ripped me off. A man like this is going to have to turn to someone for help because he is not going to steal to survive. Now, call this foreshadowing, but that would not be the first or the last time that Sheriff Blevins got it very, very wrong with regard to Peter Piper. But he wasn't the only one that would have the wool pulled over their eyes with regard to Peter Piper. The undersheriff of Allegan County, Robert Hill, actually wrote to the parole board in April of 1982 saying, I knew Pete to be a sincere, trustworthy, and dependable individual. Pete has never given up hope that someday someone will say, you have done enough time, and give him a chance to prove himself. Oh, he would prove himself, all right. The board had been periodically reviewing Piper's case for the seven years since parole became an option, and some of the board members believed that he no longer posed a threat to the community, saying that the punitive objectives of the sentence had been met. Really? How do you decide how much punitive punishment one should get after taking a tire iron to the head of a young girl? And what about the raping and stabbing her a few times before leaving her for dead? He'd done 18 years in jail, so what was the calculation here? Was that, like, two years for each of the puncture wounds to her abdomen and neck and four more for the rape and head bashing? How exactly did they come to that conclusion? It would sure be interesting to see their work on that calculation because... Peter Piper proved them wrong. Every single person who believed that there had even been a possibility he was rehabilitated, they were all wrong. The exception was the Kent County Circuit Court judge, who had inherited the case from Judge Vanderploeg. At the time, the state had what was called the Lifer Law, which said that inmates serving life sentences could only be paroled after a public hearing and then only if the sentencing judge did not object. Piper and his family said that they were told he would get a lighter sentence if he pled guilty to the rape, but in a hearing in 1971, while trying to get a new trial, he changed his story and denied the rape, saying he got angry because the victim had demanded money for sex. Take that in nice and deep, folks. He was blaming the victim that he had viciously assaulted, now suggesting that the 17-year-old got in his car that day because she was prostituting herself. Piper's second wife was even quoted in the newspaper as saying, he has never said he did not beat her, but he has always said he denied the rape. Oh, all right, well, if he denies it, it must be true, right? This guy sounds like he was surrounded by people who swallowed his line hook and sinker. The second wife, by the way, met him while he was in prison. He was 30. She was about to be a grandmother. Just as a little added backstory, Peter Piper had a brother who was serving a six-year sentence for his third rape conviction at the time. His mother, who alleged that their father had been abusive, denied making threatening calls, but said that she spoke to the Kent County prosecutor regularly. Her concern since the escape was for her son being harmed. If they do hurt him, I'll bomb that Hall of Justice right to hell, she said and then added that she wished the judge and prosecutor would croak. So I think we can assume we are not talking about the Cleavers here. His mother followed this with nasty comments about her son's accuser, who was forced to endure this back and forth in the press with every new story that had come out since he escaped. Mary had changed her name, but she still lived in the area, so she constantly had to relive the event and withstand the claims of his family that she had provoked him into beating her. Mary recounted for the newspaper that she had become an outcast during her last two years in high school after the attack, and she had no friends. She said that even after she moved on to college, former friends spread gossip about her. I became a dirty joke. I'm afraid every new person I meet will find out or hear the rumor and become repulsed by me. I'm lonely and I don't let people get close to me. Mary was essentially victimized by Peter Piper and then again by the students at her Catholic school and then again with the resurgence of her story when he escaped 18 years later. And shame on her classmates. Shame on every student, teacher, parent, and administrator at Catholic Central High who rather than supporting her, instead shunned her. And then think about the escape 18 years later and how scared she had to have been, knowing he was out there somewhere and clearly held a grudge against her. She remained strong, though. You can hear it in the quotes of the newspaper. He and I know the truth, but if he can convince you that he was the victim, God help us. At Piper's last public parole hearing, he said, She will have inner scars for a long time, but so will I. And even if I am paroled or kept here, I will still feel really bad about what I did to her. It was a horrible thing. Yeah, that's the same guy who insists that she instigated the attack, playing the victim there. I find it truly shocking to read the press accounts of how he and his family blamed the victim and how the sheriff and others spoke so highly of Piper who, in the end, so clearly proved them all wrong. His supporters even asserted that they believed if she had died and he'd been sentenced to murder instead of rape, he probably would have already won parole. I have no idea what the skewed basis upon which they made that absurd claim was, but every single one of them were victimizing her all over again. They were making excuses for the violent offender who was now on the loose, who had broken the law, and escaped from jail because he believed he was entitled to release, and when it was clear that he wasn't going to get that, he left. And not without their help, given they made it so easy for him to do so. His second wife told the press that he had planned to be home for Christmas, and the denial of his parole left him dejected. I can't begin to understand what Sheriff Levens was thinking, or anyone that believed that violent offenders of the sort that Piper was could be rehabilitated rapists are among the highest repeat offenders and if you're a violent rapist that puts a pretty nasty character out on the street in an interview sheriff blevin said there is no doubt that what the young man did when he was 17 or 18 years old was a terribly terribly heinous crime but a lot of things can happen to a man in 18 years i find this to be an interesting statement when you juxtapose it against something he said in his biography titled The Bulldog by Gordon Galloway. Of his early career at the Kent County Sheriff's Department, Blevins said, It quickly became apparent that I wasn't going to be racing around in any black-and-white patrol car right away. Instead, I was to be a floor guard with daily exposure to these scruffy, low-life inmates. These inmates represented everything I detested. They didn't like me, and I surely had no use for them. If they had been arrested and put in here... Surely they were guilty and deserved to be here. Perhaps Blevins had a come-to-Jesus moment during his career. Later, of the Peter Piper situation, when it was his ass in the hot seat for allowing the criminal to abscond, he said, Our whole system is based on rehabilitation. We don't like to admit to warehousing people away. The system sometimes gives a guy a second chance. Pete probably felt he was never going to get that chance what about Mary's chance? A lot of things can happen to the victim of violent assault in 18 years, too. What about her? There doesn't seem to be much concern for the victim, who could conceivably be in danger because of the escape, since it was widely known that Piper and his family blamed her for his current predicament. Blevins mentioned the crime itself and how terrible it was, but he never mentions Mary at all. I find this so troubling, and it makes me think about today and those rape kits that have gone untested all around the country and how we still do not seem to take violent crimes against women seriously, particularly sexual crimes. It's as if when the crime has anything to do with sex, the female must have done something to make it happen. Piper's ridiculous assertion about Mary instigating the assault by demanding money for sex also tracks with current events. Even to this day, women struggle to be believed, and it's often easier for people to believe women are lying about it. This isn't something male victims have to deal with. This is a female-centric phenomenon, and I am fairly certain if it was men being raped by other men at the rate women are raped, this wouldn't be the go-to tenor of the discussion. And you will not convince me that men don't get it. They get it. Why do you think whenever a man is sent to jail for a crime against a kid, the first thing people say is, Ooh, he'll get what's coming to him once he's inside. That what's coming to him, to which they're referring, is sexual assault. Apparently, in that case, rape is a violent type of justice meted out to the worst types of criminals, and they deserve it.
1: Firstly, I think she's very brave, um, even in terms of seeing this prosecution through, because she knew that she would um, be discredited in court. She knew that she would be going through a traumatic ordeal. It's called secondary victimization. And I think from reading her impact statement, that's really what I felt, taking a blow-by-blow account of just what it means to go through the criminal justice system, not just uh, what happened in terms of the rape itself. But I actually feel we should be sending messages to perpetrators here, because I really get fed up with hearing about what we should be saying to victims, that you should modify your behavior, you should change your behavior, you should do this, don't wear short skirts, don't drink too much. I actually think, Don't well, pass out
0: behind a dumpster because some boy was who was not told by his parents that this is like bad behavior might try to have sex with you. To me, that like blows my mind. Yeah, go it, ahead. Does, it
1: does me. I mean, for me, drinking is not a crime, but rape is. And the fact that his father then stands up and, as Mike said, I, I completely agree with the fact. You know, there's no empathy. There's no sense of taking responsibility by by Brock Turner or by his father. Um, and is all you hear about is what it impacts on them as in it's a life sentence you know this young boy thinks his life is over well so too is the victim so six months is really an insult and I actually think it does come down to um, the fact that yes privilege is there but what about the judge having a Stanford background Uh, What about the media reporting on it and actually saying that they describe the um, event but then they talk about his swimming times and how great an athlete he is and the probation officers report but ultimately it still comes down to what the judge decides to rule in terms of the sentence and it's a complete insult and we wonder why victims don't come forward and report. And I think we know why victims don't come forward and report, because it's not just what they go through in terms of their experience. It's the criminal justice system. It's the media. It's how everyone deals with them.
0: She was asking for it. Why was she wearing that? Why did she get so drunk? Why didn't she come forward back then? Why? 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 It's all insult to injury, and it's disingenuous as hell given all the excuses that people and the judicial system make for men while redirecting the blame to women. It's shocking to me that the press included such baseless accusations against his victim in their story about Peter Piper's escape. They didn't need to include that, and there was never any truth to it. The only thing that it did was victimize her more while simultaneously selling more papers. It certainly wasn't news. What was news was that a violent offender had been given way too much independence while incarcerated and what happened was highly predictable. In fact, it had already happened, repeatedly. In that article about the 71 prisoners sentenced to life who were serving time in the least secure prisons, the story notes, records show that six of the eight lifers who have escaped from prison since 1978 and are still missing walked away from minimum security facilities. Peter Piper was one of them. He'd left a letter for Sheriff Blevins in his office before he absconded, which, in and of itself, illustrates the vast freedom to move around the facility that Piper had. In part, the note read, I'm not taking off to get in trouble, I'm taking off to be free. I feel this is the only way to be free. I've done everything I can think of to get a parole, but I guess the parole board doesn't really care. I'm sorry. I don't want to do this, but what else can I do? Here are the keys. And it was signed, Pete. What was Sheriff Blevins' response? Well, he said he was grateful to Piper because he had keys for several jail doors, but he hadn't stolen any of the cash or cars to which he had access. One article in the Lansing State Journal was even titled, Considerate Con Escapes Prison. Now, I don't know if the press treatment and Blevins' efforts to minimize the crime were for PR purposes, or if they all thought their words and actions were appropriate, but some of the coverage of this event was downright disgusting. I wanted very much to wrap my head around the thinking at the time, so I read the biography of Sheriff Blevins, the book I mentioned earlier, Bulldog. In it, I found a few stories that highlighted the similarities and differences in perceptions from that era to today. Another story that stood out was from his time with Kent County Sheriff's Department, working with what was called the E-Unit, which were cops with paramedic certifications that would respond to scenes where there was serious medical injury. At some point during his tenure with the E-Unit, new policies and procedures instituted by the captain had registered nurses riding along as partners, a policy that Blevins was very much against. While he understood that their medical training was far more advanced than theirs, in addition to his belief that they would just be another person to worry about keeping safe, given they had no police training, his main concern was that the nurses would put a strain on the marriages of the officers. Quote, The RNs, for the most part, were single, pretty, and would be spending eight hours with these guys each day or night. The officers would be spending more time with these women than they would their wives. They also would have plenty of work-related things in common with these women, while at home, they would hear about things like sick kids and things that need repair. This was dangerous territory, first an affair, then a divorce. Blevins even points to this as the reason he ended up leaving his full-time position with Kent County in 1976 when he would take a few years off to run his own horse stable before he jumped back into law enforcement with the Lake County Sheriff's Department. It's not hard to see how this type of mindset, when you're concerned with the effects that women on the job will have on the men who work there, might make one predisposed to making excuses for a violent male offender who you believe had done his time and been rehabilitated, over the safety of his female victim, who he clearly blamed for his incarceration. It's also not hard to connect the dots to how this type of thinking may have led to more victims, including the murder of two young people who were just starting out their lives together. We're going to be lucky if there are no bodies laying around Michigan someplace. He's not a good person. This was Mary being interviewed by phone after the escape. Piper escaped from jail the first time in December of 1983. He wouldn't be recaptured until November of 1985. That's a hell of a long time for a violent offender to be out there in the wind doing God knows what. One month after he escaped, Ruth Piper, his new wife, got a call from him. He told her that he was cold and broke, but he would rather freeze to death and be locked up. He also told her he'd lost all the money he had, which was $450, after leaving his bag unattended at a Chicago restaurant while using the bathroom. One has to wonder where he got the $450 that he had in the first place. Don't worry, I won't break the law. I will not steal, he told her. She believed he was sleeping outside in parked cars or wherever he could find shelter. That same day, Piper called Sheriff Blevins, who said Piper told him he hoped he hadn't caused him or his department any embarrassment. He told the sheriff that he didn't have a gun or a knife and he had no intention of getting one. In the January 10th, 1984 article, Sheriff Blevins said he wasn't sure Piper was capable of making it on the outside without help. He's been shut in so long, he's like a canary flying with eagles. Like a canary flying with eagles. I still don't understand the sheriff's preoccupation with associating this violent offender with a sense of helplessness and harmlessness. It's absurd. I also can't figure out why it took law enforcement so long to find Piper, nor have I been able to ascertain just how much manpower and resources were even assigned to tracking him down. There isn't much public information about the manhunt portion of this story, which is telling in and of itself. I'm not sure there even was a manhunt to speak of, Not for long, anyway. What I did learn is that Sheriff Blevins was having a lot of other problems at this time. In 1983, around the time of Piper's first escape, the governor had formed a task force to investigate complaints of racial discrimination and brutality against his department. After the shooting of a 61-year-old black man by a young white officer, during a traffic stop in Baldwin, Michigan, a few months prior. While the state police had cleared the deputy of misconduct, the incident, as well as an alleged pattern of behavior on the part of the Lake County Sheriff's Department against members of the black community, had caused a great deal of tension. Blevins alleged that a well-known activist named Robert F. Williams, who was a member of the local redress committee, was stirring the pot. Williams was one of a group of people who were responsible for organizing a grassroots organization in Lake County dedicated to maintaining the human rights of residents. It was called the People's Association for Human Rights. Williams was a well-known black civil rights activist who advocated armed self-defense in response to violence and lived in Cuba and China until 1969. He also served in the military, lived in Detroit for a time, and eventually returned to local activism, fighting to eliminate prostitution, police brutality, and local police corruption in Baldwin, Michigan, where he spent the last couple decades of his life.
2: I found out where the strength of the United States was, and that was in the gun. And that's how I found that that was the one thing that all kinds of people could understand even the savage can understand the use of a gun and the fact was that they had all the guns when we came home we was we submitted because they had the guns they had the source of violence and we didn't and i realized in order to compete with them and to make them understand that we had to create power of our own and so as a result of that what i had learned from the military service i felt that we needed the gun, that gunpowder was all powerful in this country and in the world. And this is why I named the book Negroes with Guns, because it meant when they got guns the same as everybody else, they'd be treated the same way. And it would be to the advantage of the general public to maintain peaceful relations. So, now that doesn't mean guns for the sake of guns, it doesn't mean violence but it means a controlled situation, well disciplined wh- and well led. But what we've got now is anarchy. A lot of people with guns shooting everybody and all kinds of things and robbing and doing everything else, but that won't pay off. There's no dividend in, in that. The fact is that I grew up in the same town as suggest Jesse Hallam's. suggest Jesse Hallam's father was the chief of police and he unleashed terror against the uh, black people in that community. And I remember on one occasion that I had gone to the post office and I saw some of Helm's father, uh, Chief Helm, dragging a black woman who had been drinking, dragging her up the street by one leg and she was screaming on the ground. And the black men turned away, some went into the alleys and some turned around to keep from seeing what was going on. And I couldn't understand the fear on the part of the black men. And I was 10 years old, and that's been with me ever since. And I just felt that when I uh, should grow up, that I would never be that kind of a man. And that had a lasting impact on me.
0: Blevins said Williams was deliberately misrepresenting incidents involving the sheriff's department. Most residents get along pretty darn good with the sheriff's department, he said. That's not really how the black community saw it, though. It's not hard to see how Williams and Blevins would clash. The civil rights activist and the guy who made Ted Nugent an honorary deputy
3: may i the motor city madman uncle ted the strap assassin would like to introduce the new warrior of lake county sheriff dennis robinson
2: tell me about how how long have you known
3: dennis i'm I'm sure we met off and on a long time ago yeah i started here as a reserve in 1989. okay i was already um, sworn in in 83 Yeah, we met sometime after that i'm not sure when but uh, you've been a, a part of our departments as long as I've been here. Yep, so. yep, I think somebody said I'm the longest, I'm the oldest Lake County Sheriff Deputy still alive, or something like that. <laughs> uh, I was sworn in under Bob Blevins, a great man, yep. who now lives in the Upper Peninsula. Um, back in 83, around that era, I started doing drive-alongs and uh, ride-alongs, and we trained together, and he swore me in, because I was up here all the time.
0: A month after the two-day task force came to the Baldwin area to investigate, a Michigan House Civil Rights Committee ordered a four-member subcommittee to travel to Baldwin to investigate charges of discrimination by the Sheriff's Department. Blevins was not pleased. He told them he would not testify if they came to Baldwin because utter chaos prevailed when the last group came to investigate. Blevins said that the earlier committee was not able to control local residents who shouted down his testimony. He believed that another committee investigation would prove to be nothing but, in his words, a toothless tiger. At the time, Representative Ethel Terrell said, we're looking at a human rights problem. She cited a letter that the committee had received from the People's Association for Human Rights out of Idlewild, which described the hearing as the most painful blow we have yet endured the letter went on to say, quite ominously, experience over three years has shown us that each time we complain, to no avail, the harassment and brutality worsens, so we have no choice but to appeal to you and others in the legislature for help. There had also been an incident earlier in the summer where Sheriff Levin's was shot. He called it an ambush, although there is almost no public information about the incident other than these facts printed in the paper. Blevins alleged that he was shot in the arm as he drove his patrol car east of Baldwin one night around 10.40 p.m. He said a van or pickup pulled up alongside him and fired a shotgun at him. He said he had also received threatening phone calls. One of the few newspaper accounts of the story reported, quote, It was not immediately known if Blevins was on patrol at the time of the shooting or whether anyone was with him. There was never an arrest in that case, nor is there any corroborating information out there about the event. Things only got worse for Blevins. There was a feud between he and the Lake County Commission Chairman, a man named James Nelson. They were sparring in the newspaper over budget cuts. Blevins claimed Nelson was trying to destroy the department. Nelson claimed that the Sheriff's Department had not operated within its budget since Blevins had become sheriff in 1980. One month before Peter Piper walked out of his prison unattended, the state announced they were going to audit Lake County financial records to check for alleged misuse of public money, as well as review the Sheriff's Department policies. Dale Davis, the director of the Michigan Sheriff's Association, said there had apparently been, quote, for many many years a tremendous misuse of federal and state funds according to letters received confidentially by governor blanchard's legal counsel during the writing of the report by the committee there were allegations that people in the county government had created debts or incurred financial obligations that were improper this apparently led to the audit the report also noted that the county was a victim of a total breakdown of police community relations and suffered from a deep distrust of local government The report recommended that county employees, including the Sheriff's Department, receive racial sensitivity training and that deputies needed to, quote, learn better ways of dealing with domestic violence. They also recommended a county advisory board be established to investigate complaints about law enforcement, something Blevins had agreed to years earlier but never followed through with. There were also recommendations regarding the community itself including working with the state on an economic development plan in the county, which had once been a thriving black resort area. Idlewild was called the Black Eden in its heyday, from the 1920s to the 1960s. After the 1964 Civil Rights Act opened other resort areas up to African Americans, its popularity waned, and it was no longer the only vacation destination available to them.
3: Idlewild began in... uh... 1912 and uh, the growth period of uh, Idaho was uh, in the 20s is when it uh, made the most progress that's when uh, the individuals moved from living in tents to to small places called dog houses was just big enough for sleeping and then uh, in the mid-20s they started building uh, year-round homes here then and since that time it's been uh, accumulation of uh, of uh, nice homes, especially around the lake. Back uh, in, in the peak of the the entertainment part of Idaho, uh, uh it goes all the way back as uh, far as uh, 1927. Uh, there were pictures here of Louis Armstrong fishing out here on, uh, on the Idaho Lake. And uh, uh, his wife, uh, Lil Armstrong, was living here when she passed. Some of the performers here that come to mind uh, would be the Four Tops, Sarah Vaughan, uh, George Kirby, uh, Jackie Wilson, the list goes on and on. Those were the days when Idawild was at, at its peak in being a famous entertainment center of, of the Midwest. People came from all over the country wow. to, here to, to Idyllwild a uh, matter of fact, uh, we have residents here for basically from almost every state in the Union. Baldwin uh, is just about uh, five minutes from here, and Baldwin has always been closely connected with Idaho. It's almost a, a spillover into Baldwin.
0: By August of 1984, after the audit, and months after Peter Piper had killed the Thompsons while still on the run, the Attorney General's office charged Sheriff Levins with three counts of mishandling county money. Apparently he had deposited money into what he called a sheriff's department contingency fund set up by him that should have gone to the county treasurer. Turns out those anonymous sources who had contacted the Michigan legislature were right. The whole matter is a can of worms from the get-go, Blevins said, claiming political motivations were behind the charges against him, an effort to thwart his upcoming reelection bid. That motivation may very well have been the case, but it didn't change the fact that what he'd done wasn't legal. Blevins insisted that he had no knowledge of any money going into the wrong account, and they were charging the wrong man. He pled not guilty and went further to say, the allegations against me are made by previous and former employees of the Lake County Sheriff's Department who are obviously disgruntled, dissatisfied, and in all honesty, ineffective and poor examples of law enforcement officers. So, for those of you keeping track, that's pretty much the entire black community and most of his department now against him. Apparently. That year, November 1984, Sheriff Blevins lost his job during the general election by fewer than 300 votes. He pled no contest that same month to misdemeanor charges of willful neglect of duty. The case would have gone on trial the following year, including more felony and misdemeanor charges, but after his plea, the other counts were dismissed. At his sentencing, the Isabella County judge who presided over the case had criticized his conduct throughout. While he did not think the sheriff had benefited from the fund personally, he did believe the facts suggested that Blevins had set up the fund and should have admitted his responsibility in the matter. In early 1985, a little over a year after Peter Piper had escaped and still not been recaptured, Sheriff Blevins was found guilty and ordered to pay $1,000 in fines and costs associated with his mishandling of county money. He was also ordered to either repay Lake County the $3,200 he put into the Sheriff's Contingency Fund or prove that it was used for law enforcement purposes. So, while all this was going on, who was looking for Peter Piper? He had escaped on Blevins' watch, but who was responsible for getting him back? Was anyone even trying? I had to wonder, given the absence of any public information, how much work was being done in that regard, while Blevins was so busy being sued by the state and dealing with investigations related to discrimination by his community. Peter Piper was recaptured in November of 1985 in Grand Rapids, near his sister's home on 44th Street, by the officer who was investigating the assaults on prostitutes in the area. The two years that Piper was free correspond almost exactly to the time frame when all of Sheriff Blevins' troubles were going down. When Peter Piper was recaptured in 85, his supporters still insisted he was innocent, even after he was convicted of a series of rapes and robberies of prostitutes. I will tell you their story because I believe those women are the heroes here. After his first recapture, Mary called the Detroit Free Press and scolded the reporter about his last story, Quote, it made a terrific story, but boy, you hurt a lot of people. After his escape, she left the state because she was in fear of her life. Meanwhile, the prosecutor built his case against Piper for the murders they had since attributed to him, based in part, according to authorities on a letter that he wrote to a friend, which police said contained details only someone present during the killings of the Thompsons would know. We'll delve into the murder of the Thompsons in a later episode after we discuss the prostitutes. But four years later in 1988, while he was in the Osceola County Jail in Reed City awaiting trial, he escaped again. This time he brought a friend. Piper absconded with Mitchell Lund, a convicted burglar. They escaped around 9 p.m. on a Thursday night after beating up a jail guard and tying him up. At the time, Lieutenant Dallas Jenks, the administrator for the Osceola County Jail said, both of them are considered to be extremely dangerous. I'm nervous about both of them being out of my jail, but Piper would be the one I'd be most nervous about. Lund was arrested around 3 p.m. the next afternoon in a residential area of Big Rapids. During this time, a woman from Newego sent a letter to the Detroit Free Press insisting that Piper had been with her. They are really railroading him again. I know he is not guilty, as he spent the whole four days in my home. Well, he wasn't even out four days. It was more like 30 hours. The Macosta County Sheriff's Department finally caught him at 2.50 in the morning, a few days after his escape, alongside U.S. 131 near Big Rapids. He was muddy and bruised from spending two days moving around in the woods and marshland between Reed City and Big Rapids. Police had been receiving a steady stream of tips about sightings of him in the area. He was so tired he wasn't even able to run from the deputies who approached him. At 41 years old, it would be the last time Peter Piper would get a taste of freedom. Today, he lives at the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan. The website says it provides mainly dormitory-style housing, containing 16 units, which includes housing for geriatric and pre-geriatric prisoners. As far as security, the perimeter includes a double fence, electronic detection systems, razor-ribbon wire, and a patrol vehicle. At 70 years old, it's Probably unlikely that he would ever be able to escape again, but given his propensity toward manipulation, I hope they're keeping a good eye on him. Piper always seemed to be able to manipulate people into lying to the press for him. Every time, with every escape, his first victim had to watch as the media reported the false allegations against her. In a 1988 article in the Detroit Free Press, She was upset that the media had, quote, made a folk hero out of a man who, in her opinion, was a potential killer. By that point, she had moved out of state, but still hadn't gotten over what had happened to her all those years ago when she was just a girl. She thought that the press was far too sympathetic to Piper, and I would have to agree. Your story needed two victims. No, he is not a victim. He has a lot of victims, but he is not a victim. There's been a lot of times I wish that he had done the job better. He was a stinker. I wish someone would do him in. Stay tuned. I'm gonna
4: beg for your forgiveness, gonna do that from the start. Gonna need you as a witness, you may have a hardened heart. Have I always been a sinner, or did the world tell me apart? Can I somehow be put together sometime today? Cause life is short. Deacon Phillips, can you hear me? My dear old man, how are you there? I think my train is off the railing. Is there some way to get it clear? My heart, my God, is full of stars. And who don't you know, don't you know. You brought a demon to the dark My heart, my God, is full of stars And ooh, don't you know, don't you know You brought a demon to the dark In the darkness, someone's shivering, paralyzed because of fear. It's been this way not since the eighties. When I started with the bill, just to help me with the tremors. The liquor keeps me even killed. Powder gets me through the nighttime. And all my daytime friends are abuse. So I never touched the needle. But it pricked me just the same. Started following the money. So it's all a solid, dirty game. Mr. Phillips, can you hear me? My dear old man, how are you there? Feels just like the world is ending. Is there some way to get it clear? My heart, my God, is full of stars. And ooh, don't you know, don't you know, you brought a demon to the dark. My heart, my God, is full of stars. And oh, don't you know? Now you know, you brought a demon to the dark.